Today on Chasing Leviathan, we pursue the big question, what is the legal heritage left to the world by English common law? My guest is Dr. Ian Williams, Associate Professor at the University College London. We discuss how legal opinions were formed and disseminated, and I learn about the current state of blasphemy laws. So come, have a seat, and learn to listen with me. You know, as as we kind of get started here, you know, just talking about what is uh, what is English common law and what is its impact. Uh, tell us a little bit about how um, you got interested in this topic. Uh, how did Dr. Ian Williams? You know, tell us a little about Dr. Ian Williams. Yeah, so the UK is a bit different to the US in that you can do a law degree as an undergrad because um, UK undergrad education is way more specialized than the US one. So you don't typically have majors and minors; you just do one subject. And that, that's Got your it. subject all the way through. And you can do a law degree as your undergraduate subject. And then you kind of do professional training if you want to after that to practice. So, you know, you can have an attorney in the UK who's practicing at 22 when they're kind of kicking okay. off law school <laughs> in the US. Um, yeah. It can be slightly yeah. odd because your, your life experience is pretty limited. And then you're reading these things about, you know, homicide cases or something. Um, but yeah, you kick off. And you're doing that, you think, and that sounds like a good, good degree choice. You know, it's the classic, your middle-class parents are going to love this. It's a nice, reliable career. And then, then you go into academia. Um, but <laughs> yes, yeah, so you pick you your law degree. And then where I was, there were plenty of options to be doing the historical side of it, which is something I'd always been interested in in various ways. And so I would do those options. They're really fun. Um, yeah. In, in part in the sense that we know so little. Um, so you may well ask me questions and I might go, we don't know that. Um, we kind of have this, this flip side of there aren't that many people who work on the historical side um, mm. versus we have incredibly good records. So we have the English court records, central court records go back to the 12th century. Um, and yeah. you can still go and view them in London. In fact, you can go and view them. Anybody who wants to search for the Anglo-American Legal Tradition Project, and you can go and look at medieval and early modern central court records online. Bob Palmer wow. from the University of Houston has done a brilliant job with his team of just getting nice quality digital images. I mean, you've got to be able to read weird handwriting, and it's in heavily abbreviated Latin, so it's probably not great for most of you. <laughs> But it's there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's great for yeah. us. Um, I mean, there are some, if you go back to like the 16th century stuff, which is where I work, and you look at the Court of Chancery, mm. which I'm sure we'll probably come back to, um, their sure. records are in English. Okay. So the handwriting's different, but the words and the spelling's awful. But the words are ones that you would recognize. You're like, yeah, you can read this and you can work with it. Um, but there's just so much stuff there. Um, that you can think about and you know, different people do different things and it's it's sort of a great unknown for history which we're building up on but also it's so important mm -hmm. for history you know kind of constitutional history history of society you know how mm -hmm. are you for example regulating what women can do what children can do um what kind of relationships can people have um mm. history of commerce how do you make your contracts who can make contracts? Who has the property? What do you do if the property is not held in the way you want it to be held? So this is a big one in English legal history is property transmission. You know, it's the kind of Downton Abbey type stuff where you have your 
wealthy landowner who actually, when he dies, his daughters aren't going to get the property. It's Downton Abbey. It's Pride and Prejudice. That's legal history. Yeah. That's, that's all law. Yeah. That sets up your plot points. It's not the plot point, right. really. You know, the plot develops from there, but you can't have the plot without the law. Um, yeah. Or you get, you know, your high treason cases where someone gets their head chopped off or whatever it might be. So there's all that kind of stuff. Um, Very cinematic, yeah. Yeah, it is. And yeah, you know, you think of things like, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird, Few Good Men, the court scenes. That's all yes. coming from the history. Um, or you might have a thing that I often look at is sort of ideas in history. So I look at um, where are lawyers getting their ideas from about things? You know, where do they decide? Mm. So one thing I'm looking at at the moment why do certain things get punished as under criminal law? Um, why is this criminal or not? Um, and not civil. Yeah, suit. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, yeah, I, do, I mean, full disclosure, I looked at $95 and I, I, I couldn't justify buying it to my wife, but the networks and connections and legal history, like you edited that volume, this is what we're talking about, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's part of it. Certainly, I mean, that was yeah. a, a conference yeah. we did 2017 and then you work out some of the papers. So that was in Britain. We have one big conference for legal history every two years. We've had a three-year gap this time, thanks to COVID. Um, totally yeah. messed up. What a surprise. Out. Yeah. Um, and that was... You always try and pick a kind of very broad theme for people. And we went with networks and connections because it's a good way of getting people to think about things. So you get kind of the British Empire thing that you were talking about, PJ, but you've also got a chapter in there which is about kind of the connections between scholars developing a legal idea, um, connections right. between business and lawyers and how, you know, people need capital. How do the lawyers facilitate that? Which then can facilitate the Industrial Revolution and particular case of the chapter in that volume it was also facilitating slaveholding plantations in america so less good um but all of yeah. that is it from one perspective it comes through law from another hmm. perspective law is kind of the handmaiden of other things you need it but right. you could say you can treat it instrumentally you know you might find you'd have an economist yes. for them law's instrumental um for some mm -hmm. historians law's instrumental for other historians law isn't instrumental and for some economists they say actually no the law shapes the way the economy works so we need to understand it so you can have different perspectives yeah. on it i'm very internal because i'm in a law school so i'm going to be thinking in that way right right um so uh talk a little bit how you know you got interested um what uh what is english common law do you mind giving us like yeah. a, so a, that wikipedia definition but better <laughs> Yeah, so, yeah, I did actually look at the Wikipedia one to see what I thought about it. It could be worse. Um, so, I mean, common law just generally, I mean, not just English. Um, yeah. Actually, the English common mm. law now has quite departed in many ways from the kind of historical construct uh, because of legislation and kind of regulatory state and things in many important ways. But common law traditionally mostly is defined negatively in that it's hmm. a legal system which isn't based on a single or small number of kind of authoritative texts. So if you're looking more at the, the usual counterpart is a civilian system. So that'll be somewhere like France or Germany, um, most of continental Europe, most of Latin America. Um, they have a code or a few codes. You might have one for kind of private law, things like contracts, torts, property. You might have another one for criminal law. And when a judge mm. is deciding a case, they look at that text. In theory, that's mm. all they're meant to do to then work out what the law is and then apply it to the facts. And we don't have those in common law traditions 
usually. Hmm. So instead, the lore is somewhere else. <laughs> One of the big questions is actually, where is it? Um, and the modern view on that is that, in a sense, it's made by judges. And then to find out what the mm. law is, you have to go and look at what judges have said and also done in the past, in previous cases, that you can say are somehow relevant to the one in front of you. Um, and sometimes that's the, so you just do a kind of factual analogy. So you say, oh, well, the facts are similar, therefore. That's no use, though, when you get a case which doesn't seem to have an obvious factual analogy. Which yes. you do. People are spectacularly good at producing weird and wacky scenarios that you're not used to dealing with. Um, I mean, I love, there was a lovely example so you, of preparing for... Yeah, sorry. No, I was just going to say, so you're often... You, the argument you're making isn't even about the, the case. It's about connecting it to a case. And you're saying, no, this is the case that applies, not this one. Yeah, right? exactly. It is weird and wacky. Like a, a, but you were about to give an example. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, sorry. It's about the weird and wackiness. Yeah. So I was doing a, a seminar yeah. with some of my master's students this year about um, arguments about whether you should have codified the criminal law in England in the 19th century. And one of the people who wanted mm. to codify it said, well, there are some issues we could talk about, but they're more for kind of moral theorists to think about because they're very unlikely to come up. And one of them was what's called this defense of necessity, that if you act because it's absolutely necessary to act in this way, um, you shouldn't be criminalized for it. This was about 1870s. 1880, there's this really famous case in the English criminal law tradition where some sailors are shipwrecked. And the only way they survive is by killing the cabin boy as the weakest member of the crew and eating him. <laughs> and this kind of resort to necessity in a shipwreck was exactly one of the things he said you don't need to talk about because it's so unlikely you just leave it to the people talking about the moral questions. And then 10 years later, and look what we've got happening in front of a trial judge who's going, what do we do about this? Yeah. <laughs> but then that case, so that one about can you eat the cabin, can you kill the cabin boy to eat him? That's the important part, is the killing part. Came up then over a century later in England and Wales, where they had a really horrible case of two conjoined twins who mm. were not going to survive if they remained conjoined. And it was possible, the doctors thought, to separate the twins. One of them would die as a result of that procedure, but the other one would survive. And this case about killing for cannibalism is then seen as relevant, but you can say, well, the principle behind the case is similar. Factually, it's completely different. Right. The principle back there is, can you do things that will cause harm to one person to keep another person alive? And if you pull out that kind of more generalized principle, that is a way of moving from what you've already got decided to something very different, actually, in terms of the facts on the ground. Um, now, that's unusual. There are so few of those cases, you can draw very clear links from kind of case A to case B. Yes. Case Q, yeah, yeah, yeah. because they don't match. Um, but in a lot of cases, it's much more, there are a lot of cases, and it's picking out what you think is most relevant, or trying to get them to fit together so that everything looks coherent. So what you don't yes. particularly want in the legal system is you don't want a legal system where you've got, say, well, we've got a case here and a case there, and they all kind of work individually, but they don't come together and there's no kind of clear rule. So what a lot right. of you know, lawyers, judges, academics are doing is trying to say, well, if we look at it all together, we can say this is the principle. And then we know a principle, which we can then apply in other cases. Um, and that's yes. very much the modern way of thinking about it. Um, yeah. Is that, um, and forgive me, I'm going to, is it stare decisis? Stare decisis is the way we talk about it now, yeah. Decisis. 
Yes, yes. That the word idea Latin of, is of terrible, precedent. so never assume the pronunciation is, is wrong. Just, just okay. go with it. <laughs> Got it. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's so funny that, the, and one of the things I love in philosophy, you know, people will often say, well, I mean, these are all theoretical cases, will never happen. And I was just uh, a month ago, I was talking to uh, Dr. Francis Beckwith um, about uh, religion and the public square. But he was talking about um, how intuition plays an important part, um, even if you can't argue from the principles in the legal tradition. And the example he used was in Germany, a guy put out uh, an advertisement. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Do you know? <laughs> where he's like, to hey, I want to cannibalize. Again, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. It's like, I want, I want to cannibalize someone. And someone responded and said, cannibalize me. And it all... For some reason, it could slide into the cracks of the law, and everyone's like, "Okay, something's wrong here. Like, we have to figure out a way to like this is <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is problematic." Yeah. So, and it's yeah. problematic from other perspectives because you can go, "Okay, wait, we've got the principle, and we want to find a way of criminalizing that." But then you may also have to say, "Well, hold on, there's a competing principle in the system yes. of not retrospectively criminalizing." You know, for, right, right. Particularly for criminal law, you don't want the state to be able to punish mm -hmm. people for something that they've oh, yeah. made up. Um, yes. And, you, and that's where you get your attention in legal development. You go, well, we might be able to do this, but there may be another part of the system that pulls in a different direction. Um, and that's yeah. where you're trying to really get things to come together or weigh up the balances. Or in the case of cannibalism, go with your intuitive judgment is this, and we don't think the system is at all legitimate if we let people kill and eat other people. Um, <laughs> you think so, yeah. You, you'd really even if, even so, with yeah. their permission, yeah. I, so, and you've kind of uh, touched on it here, but... Um, uh, it's kind of where you ended earlier, that how has uh, legal thought developed over time? And uh, what would have been kind of those, the, maybe those decisive points? Or is that the wrong way to think about it? It's certainly the wrong way to think about it further back, because although we've got loads of sources telling what people were thinking is mm -hmm. much more difficult. We've got a whole load of decisions of cases. And for England, yeah. we have, so if you go back to from the, late 13th century onwards, we have texts which purport to record what was said in court by judges and lawyers, um, usually about property issues. Um, but we can never be entirely sure quite how accurate those are. And they're certainly not comprehensive. What we don't have are the people doing the kind of thing I've just been talking about of trying to say, here's a general principle we've extracted from everything. That only really starts to some extent in the later 16th century, 17th century, more in the 18th century, and then it's a very big thing in England and in the US in the 19th century where people are really trying to do this, modeling themselves actually on continental Europe to some extent. Mm. Well, they say that law is rules. Surely we should be able to understand law as rules as well. And that's, that is partly a philosophical shift. There's this idea that law is a set of rules coming from someone who's authorized to create them. And so we should be able to identify what the rules are. Whereas mm. if you go back much earlier, there's much more the idea law is. And you probably stop after the is. And it definitely exists. And the question is, how do you identify it, not who makes it? It's a big kind of, ah, that, that kind of shift in philosophy. I mean, Thomas Hobbes is usually seen as kind of the really strong departure point in the mid-17th century for the English-speaking tradition. Of you've just yes. got to have one person in charge or one body or something in charge that determines all the rules. And he's yep. not a particularly big fan of the common law tradition because it doesn't work like that. 
Um, no, of course not. Yeah, really doesn't, and it definitely didn't work like that earlier. I mean, we look at we're, we're pretty confident now that we think that in the particularly the 14th and then the 15th century, a lot of what's thought of as common law is because all the lawyers know that's what the law is. And they seem to have learned it by going and watching cases in courts, by having lectures being given in the law schools, which are all in London, um, just after dinner, um, where they get to ask questions. And then they also kind of yeah. chat to the judges. And it's a really small community. You know, you've got in England, mm. for the common law tradition in the central, the King's Courts in London, there's about a dozen judges in total. Wow. Um, and the two main courts, the King's Bench and the Common Police, are in the same physical room. They're both in Westminster Hall, which is still standing just outside the Houses of Parliament. Um, they're at opposite ends. Um, so if they have a question, they can literally sort of literally get down, wander off down the corridor, have a chat, wander back. Um, we know that sometimes they have conversations over dinner where they're working out what they should yeah. do. And in the 18th century, that's really significant for criminal law, actually. So criminal law the judges get sent around the country to try the cases twice a year. And if they find a case they're stuck with, they come back to London and they chat about it with the other judges over dinner. It's very much the law is what the judges think it is based around a kind of internal conversation. It's not really legislation. Mm. And for that, there's not really kind of decided cases either where you can draw clear principles. It's a more kind of shared understanding idea of the norms. Yeah. Um, which a lot of communities have. I mean, if you talk to an anthropologist about this, I'm sure you'd see exactly the same. They say, well, you know, you can go to a group anywhere and they have group norms which they all understand. The difference is when the judges and lawyers have group norms that they understand, they can then get state backing to enforce them against everybody else. Yes. They yeah. do not know what they are or understand them. Hmm. So, and that's part of, uh, yeah, I saw, I think it's an article you wrote about how the printing press changed a lot of this, yeah. right? And the application of the printing press. What was that process like? And what it, how did that change like this balance of power? Well, was this part of that Thomas Hobbes move? Yeah, well, it might be. I mean, certainly it, it is for legislation because you do get a big shift that when Parliament legislates, you get an official legislated text produced by a printer who is given a monopoly by the government to print statutes and no one else can do it. Mm. And that is at least in part a quality control measure to make sure there is a single text. Right. We have spoken. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, English statutes in the period actually end with the king wills this. Right? The, the king wills this. This is the legislation. It's the law. Um, so in that sense, yes, definitely the printing press shifts it for legislation. For case law, it has the quite important effect that everybody can use the same text to argue. So as soon as these start getting produced as printed text, people can go, aha, well, look what was said here. Although they never actually say look, because that would require carrying the books into court. Um, and they're, they're, they're quite big and they're quite heavy, so no one actually does that. Right. What they actually do is they make their own notebooks based on the printed texts, and those are a lot smaller, and they're probably carrying those with them. Um, but they've got standard references, which they can check. Um, and weirdly, English common law printing is very good at keeping the same pagination between editions which is not common in early printing, actually, but in England, no. do. <laughs> um, and it's, it's great. And they make this one big change in the 1590s where the first woman to print law books, her husband, she takes over her husband's business when he dies, um, makes the books twice as tall. But she puts little A, B indicators in to show you where previously the page ended. So you still get the same pagination, even though the page numbers have changed. Like this is, it's clear they think that this being able to re refer across editions is important. 
Um, so it's that ability to kind of cross-refer. But it also leads to people producing reference works where you might be able to kind of draw out more of a principle. Because you've got this mm. common stock you can all refer to, you can then say, well, I'm going to write a book which has got a, well, not a book, typically a section which has got maybe a heading. And in that heading, I'm going to put all the material I think is relevant to that topic or that heading. And then maybe I'll try and draw out an idea from that, uh, which I can then expound more broadly. Um, there's one English lawyer who goes on to be a judge who actually, he does that, but at the top of his personal reference book, based on all these printed stuff, he actually puts little Latin sentences about what he thinks the kind of core idea is. And those Latin sentences mm. are actually coming from Roman law books. Um, so he thinks they're, they're kind of comparable. Um, and then you get people who produce horrible, undigested, gigantic texts, which are just awful to read. I mean, um, Edward Cook, who is like titanic for reputation as this amazing judge, his books are horrible to read. Um, you, you get to late 18th century English lawyers, American lawyers, 19th century English and American lawyers who are told, you are meant to read this 17th century book as your starting point to law. And they all say, this is horrible. I want something <laughs> else to read. And, and people say, it's embarrassing that we're still using this. We want something that's more accessible. But yeah, that technological shift, it just, it gives you text, but the text is still not official. And it's still not legislation in the same way. You know, the, the, the material that's printed is produced by a lawyer who's made his own notes. Um, quite often, they're posthumous publications. Um, so there were some reports printed in 1585, oh, okay. which are the case notes of a chief justice. Do you think that that's going to be really important? Um, and they were considered really important, but he didn't publish them while he's alive. He's, he's been dead for a few right. years. It's his heir who says, well, I've been asked by other people to publish these, so I will. And even when he did it, they very carefully edited out a significant proportion of the book that they thought was controversial, mostly about things to do with um, kind of either governmental matters or personal scandal in some way. Oh, okay. And those gotcha. only got edited and published in the 1990s. Um, they only got rediscovered in the 1990s as well. Um, so it was a kind of cut down and truncated version. Um, and there was that kind of, even people who published while they were alive, there was kind of self-censorship there um, very often on things to do with the, with the king, typically in the king's powers. Um, so Edward Cook, who is a spectacular self-publicist and very happy to publish lots of stuff. He publishes 11 volumes of law reports during his life. Um, two volumes are published posthumously from his notebooks. Those two have got a lot of the cases that modern people who are interested in kind of constitutional history want to look at, but he didn't mm. want to put them into the public sphere while he was alive. So that the kind of the constitutional type law ideas were still being kept very much internal um, mm. and much happier publishing stuff about who owns what, how you transfer rights, how you claim property, um, with exceptions. You know, one of Edward Cook's reports is actually. Um, a, what was described at the time as the most important case ever. Um, again, possibly self-publicism, but not entirely. Um, but it's a really big case because you've had, um, after Elizabeth I dies, the King of Scotland becomes the King of England. Um, right. And he wants to have a single country. He wants to actually have Great Britain as a country, rather than England and Scotland as two separate countries. Um, and he tries to do this through Parliament, and Parliament doesn't let him. So instead, they contrive a test case. It's an interesting thing in itself that they're creating test cases. 
um, about whether someone who's Scottish can inherit land in England, which would mean that he had some kind of legal status in England as well as in Scotland, which he wins, unsurprisingly. It's a test case arranged by the government, so you'd probably expect that at the time. Um, <laughs> but the king apparently orders that a report of that case is printed and disseminated so that people know that what he's trying to do is not something terrible and unlawful. He's tr- he was trying to achieve what the law already actually was, thank you very much. And all you ignorant MPs got it completely wrong. Next time you'll listen to me. Um, and yeah, you get this kind of tour de force of legal argument with references, you know, classical literature, the Bible, theology, English legal sources about why it's definitely okay that a Scotsman can inherit land in England. Um, and it's huge, but it's, it's a test case. So something about cases is important by that point. But also mm. disseminating that case to tell everybody this has been decided yeah. is important. Yes. Um, and that, that's a big thing for the printing press, because before that, the cases you find, it's variable. You don't know what you're going to get. Um, so we have, I show my students this, we have a copy in UCL of some printing press era handwritten law reports, because people are still making their own handwritten reports in this period as well. Um, and someone writes down when he acquired them. And so these are reports from about 1585 to 1590 from Reign of Elizabeth I. He says, I acquired these from my cousin in 1626. So 30 years later, it's taken for him to receive these. But he thinks right, they're really right. important because he goes through and he annotates them. So mm. he knows this is important stuff for him to know, even though it was from 30 years ago. Um, so there's that wanting to get the latest material, but you can't always get it in print still until really the 18th century. It takes a very long time for, to get fairly current legal printing and dissemination mm. of sources moving through England. I mean, England's a small country. It's not that difficult to disseminate things if you really want to. Right. Downside is it's a small country with a small number of lawyers. So there's not that big a market for any of your books. Um, so, yeah, uh, rules of the market. Yes. Yeah, to some extent, that's got to be there as well, yeah. Uh, yeah, interesting. So, um, do you see any uh, corollaries, or do you think there are going to be any similar, um, anything we can learn uh, as lessons from how the printing press affected things, and do you think the internet will have anything similar? Possibly. I suspect not England. Actually, there's a really nice story from Europe where people start complaining that they've got too much to know and they just can't keep up. And that one strikes me as the much more likely because now right. you do get a lot of stuff coming out. You know, the, the time it takes you to, purely selfishly with a degree of self-indulgence, the time it takes me to check all the latest cases to prepare for teaching in a new term is more than it was for people 20, 30 years ago because now almost every... Yeah decision from the high court upwards is available electronically um which is a lot more to cover um how far that affects or how far you can parallel that to the printing press in england um Hmm. we still have well now we've got more official ish publication of cases than we used to have um, because judges now supply the text of their judgment, which is then usually, but not always, made available online. So you can access it directly. Mm. So now 
Um, so the UK Supreme Court, for example, now publishes its own judgments on its own website with a press summary about why this is important for non-lawyers to understand as well. Um, I always worry that that's what the students are going to read. But it's, um, <laughs> that's really different. That idea yeah. that the, the court itself is determining who's reading or one, how you should read it, but also determining the text that gets put out is very new mm. and it is more like than a kind of an official state text still not legislation in the same way um, but it is right. state text you definitely do have a shift though in that it's there's even more accessibility to the text in that you know when you printed something okay yeah you printed it and you could read it but it was still in a book that was separate to whatever you were doing Yes. If I'm doing something online, I'm looking at an online text and I'm writing something in, you know, my, whatever my word processing software is, control C, control V, and now I'm literally, I can just use the judge's words. Yes. And they're the words that the judge officially wrote and gave to be put on the website, which I can now use. So that's going to be, in one sense, it's similar. You've got a more textual approach to the sources. In one sense, it's different because now I know that I'm not saying what the person sitting in court thought the judge said. I'm now repeating exactly what the judge wanted to yeah. say, um, yeah. which may give it more authority in a sense, mm. because if we're thinking about the judge as the person who is making or establishing the law, being able to use their precise words might be more important than it was 300, 400 years ago, because you couldn't do that then, partly because of the printing yeah. press, way the printing press works, and also because we reported stuff in French and then everyone's actually speaking in english that's just a weird yeah. historical artifact of lawyers um, <laughs> well and then you're getting things 30 years ago or 30 years later and who knows what changes in that time well, exactly. right exactly well, like, you, lawyers do. you can't go back and ask yeah. right like at that point someone's probably passed away the person yeah, who said yeah. it i mean the non-lawyers really struggle they're, they're not going to know what's going on the lawyers probably can because they'll of course have access to kind of networks of people to talk to they'll find out what's happening but a non-lawyer purchasing a law book is probably not going to fully understand it or be aware of where it fits with everything. I still think mm. a non-lawyer purchasing a law book isn't going to understand things, but they'll be up to date on right. misunderstanding <laughs> rather than just behind the times and also misunderstanding. Because uh, a legal text is not like most other texts in terms of the way you read it, I think. Um, it's just, it, 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 Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah so legal texts, they're mostly written to justify what's happening to other lawyers, particularly at the appellate level, because they're the people who are going to have to read this and use it later. Um, mm. there's, I mean, there's a countervailing movement, particularly in cases involving families, where the judge also wants to speak to the litigants to explain, this is why I have done this. Um, but particularly when you're trying to extract the legal principle, that's often very technical. It'll be about, well, here's what I think about case A and case C, and why that, in fact, case B is stronger, and I should look at that. And, I don't think a non-lawyer cares about that. Um, but you develop an understanding of this is how you read this kind of thing and use it and explain it. It's one of the skills that you develop in your law degree, um, whether that's your first degree or whether that's law school, um, that you spend your time reading those texts and trying to understand, okay, so this is, if I read this case, this is what I understood. Now I can read a case where a judge then referred to that case. How did he talk about it or she talk about that case? And then I'll start to understand how I should have understood that case. And certainly the first time ever I read a case, I got it completely wrong. Didn't understand at all what I was doing. 
I got sent some pre-reading already. I thought, I thought I understood this. No, no, utterly ignorant. Um, and I think that's fine. I think realizing your ignorance before you start is probably a good thing. Um, yeah. But they worry about this with the printing press. They worry that people who aren't lawyers will get hold of law books and make bad arguments or start mm. thinking they're legally entitled to things that they are not. Uh, right. And you still get Oh, this will hold up in court. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And so they think they can litigate and they think they can argue for themselves or they think they can do something and then if the other person challenges it, they'll lose. You know, the, the person who challenges mm -hmm. it will lose that. Actually, they probably won't. They probably knew what they were doing. Um, and you, you still see that. You get the, you kind of get the active misinformation being circulated on the internet about this kind of thing. Um, and you to some extent you, you see that as well. So, so something like you see, you see yes. like the free men of the of the realm or whatever it is that people talk about sort of on the internet, like it's absolute legal gibberish. I was just about to ask about in uh, in America they call themselves sovereign citizens. Yeah, right. And that yes, <laughs> absolute legal gibberish. And they go in and the, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was like, I'm like, ah, this sounds familiar. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, and it does it like I'm like sitting there. I'm like, I don't know exactly like. Obviously, they're quoting more laws than I know, but I'm like, that, that can't be right. You know? <laughs> it, it really, they, 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 yeah, at one point, they went back to Magna Carta. And there's, there's all the legal historians looking at it, going, it really doesn't say that. It really, really <laughs> doesn't. Um, I mean, we had one in the UK, I think it was in the news, where someone tried to say that because they were, they come to like free man of the, of the realm or something, they weren't required to close their business during a COVID lockdown. They're thinking, no, you... And they, they had this provision of Magna Carta. You went to look at it. Like, it doesn't say anything about this at all. I mean, just... just if you'd actually... <laughs> non if you had read that, there were no yes. words in there connected to the thing you are talking about. Um, oh, man. So, I mean, that happens. You get that circulation. Yep. You get it at various times in different ways. Um, we get that now and it's circulating on the internet. You would have seen kind of pamphlet literature in the 17th century that may well have done something very similar. Um, or in particularly in the 17th century, they'll try and say, well, okay, you might be able to tell me what the English common law says, but there's also the law of God and the law of God is higher and what I'm doing is okay under that, so you can't tell me off. And then you start getting into these interesting jurisprudential, legal theory, theological waters about the relationship between secular law and divine law, which whenever you have a secular judge adjudicating it, you'll be shocked to realize that the secular law is always completely compatible with the divine law <laughs> and that you can use the secular law to understand what you should be doing. And so shut up with all these divine law based arguments because they're just <laughs> embarrassing. Thank you. Um, which is normal. I mean, that's what you would expect if you had a non religious judge deciding a case where someone's right. bringing in a religious law argument against secular law. Um, yeah. Unless your secular law somehow recognizes religious law, which it does in some countries, but not in England. Hmm. Oh, that's, uh, and so, and let me, uh, so I'm just, I want to clarify some of the things you said and see, make sure I'm tracking. When you talk about uh, these notebooks that they're writing down and their, their notes that they're taking, is that kind of the precursor to like the modern day opinions that are written by judges okay so the most of them we've got are actually written by lawyers who aren't judges so they are more the judges speaking in court and yes. the lawyer will write down some form of version of what they thought the judge was saying now that might be trying to take right. verbatim uh that happens more once they've invented shorthand which is a kind of 
just before the middle of the 17th century, people start using shorthand. And so you can actually start taking things down more or less verbatim. Otherwise, it's a summary. Um, this is what I understood he was saying. Some judges do write down and keep their own notes with varying degrees of reliability and thoroughness. Um, so some notebooks are very detailed. Um, some are much less. Something I was looking at, there's a Huntington Library in California is wonderful for various reasons. But one thing they've got is they've got papers of an English family who had a Lord Chancellor, one of the highest judges, as a member. And then his son doesn't become an official judge, but does sit in certain courts on occasion. And they, in these cases, clearly just kind of scribbled some notes on the cause list, which is the names of the parties and a very brief summary about what the case is about, like two or three words. And they're just scribbling some notes on those, which are utterly incomprehensible unless you can find something else about the case. Um, so those are not the opinions. But you do also see sometimes for big cases, kind of like the high profile ones, mm. you might find people actually preparing a full speech. We don't have many of those left, but we do have some. And those are very much a modern judicial opinion or indeed counsel's gotcha. opinion. They're, they're perfectly the same thing, particularly, yes, yeah, state trial type things. So, um, uh, like the Edmund Cook, uh, Edward Cook ones, yeah. Um, Edward Cook, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. There's a, there's a big one in the 1630s about whether the king can raise taxes for defense essentially without going through parliament. And one of the judges who says no, so he's dissenting, um, he clearly produces a text of his own opinion, which he then sends to the king. Um, it also sure that went over well. <laughs> yeah, it also purely coincidentally <laughs> circulates quite quickly in manuscript to other people who are buying copies of it. So there's loads of copies of it around. Um, mm. So it's also a PR exercise. But yeah, he clearly wrote down his own speech, and there are other judges in that case who also did that. And you can see they're really well researched. They're very thorough. Um, sometimes we're not sure is that for public dissemination or is that literally just so that they understand what they're going to do and say they they do right. decide to write down what they're going to say in advance. It's like it's very thorough speaking notes. Hmm. Is not a bad thing to have access to, right? <laughs> In, in a high-profile case. High-profile yeah, case. We know people were in court for this case. There's a, there's a paying audience coming into court to watch these cases. Um, they don't sort of have to pay, but people kind of pay to get the best seats and things. Um, it's court as entertainment. I did not know that happened. Yeah, oh, okay. it, it really did. The, the price of seats, early 17th century, price of seats for an interesting high-profile public case, about the same as the cost of a ticket to go and see Shakespeare in the theatre. Um, <laughs> Which one is more beneficial for you? I'll leave that up in the air. I do, yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, so um, the judges are public actors, and they know they're public actors. And I suspect hmm. if you'd find you know, trial judges today, I think you'd probably find we're kind of preparing in a fairly high-profile case, we're probably preparing what they were going to say very carefully before pronouncing it. I mean, even in the, the 1950s, we had a judge in England who was complaining about the fact people were making reports of things he said in cases where he hadn't gone out of court to think about what he was going to say. So you know, lawyers come in, they present their arguments, and he just gives an off the, off the top of his head, essentially, response to that. And then someone writes it down, it gets printed and circulated, and then people cite it back to him. And he's, he's complaining about this. But no, no, you can't treat that as a serious exercise 
of me setting out the law in the same way as when I go away and I spend some time writing it down as a full text, which I then read out in court, um, which is a very different exercise. I suspect we don't have in the 17th century or 16th century, even before that, what we have today, which is sometimes in some cases, the judges pre-circulate their text when they've made their decision to the lawyers in the case confidentially, asking them just to make sure they haven't said something incorrect or misrepresented what was said hmm. um, as a as sort of a quality control measure. Um, yeah. Which does happen. And also now we know judges talk to each other before they make the decisions as well and circulate amongst themselves. Their opinion. Over dinner. Possibly. Yeah. I mean, Possibly. We, we, we hear about, you know, Supreme Court judges who have yeah. dinner together. Um, yeah. We've had two Supreme Court judges in the UK who are in fact married to each other. So I suspect they do talk about these things over dinner. I don't know. <laughs> Um, maybe they leave work at work and talk about much more interesting things yeah. when they get home. But you oh, would man. have that, maybe. But also, they they literally do. They say, "Well, this is what I'm thinking about saying," and they'll, they'll pass copies to each other. Um, and yeah. people don't have a choice about whether they want to just say, "Well, I agree with that," or "I'm going to put my own spin on it," or something similar. Uh, so, I mean, you mentioned Hobbes and Leviathan. I'm also interested in this. It keeps coming up. It's not just that it's a community. There's this appeal to like this learned and educated community and the importance of reason. Uh, what are kind of the roots of that? What, what kind of formed that community? Was that out of necessity? Was there a particular work or, or event that kind of yeah. uh, said, oh, we need this? Well, this is a very, it's a very European phenomenon. It's not an English peculiar phenomenon, this idea that you have kind of learned lawyers who are deciding cases. Um, in England, what seems to have happened is that there is an idea that the king must provide justice. That's, that's a job of a king. They, they swear to that in the coronation oath. They still swear to that in the coronation oath in this country. Um, and so in a sense, people are going to come to the king with problems and expect a resolution. Um, there's also the position of the king kind of within the feudal system of land holding in the medieval period, where ultimately people have got their land from the king or from someone who got it from the king or from someone who from someone and from someone and so on in these kind of long chains. Um, and that means the ultimate decision maker about problems within that structure should be the king. Kings are busy people. They have other things they want to be doing with their time. So they delegate this kind of stuff. A lot of it, not always all of it, because it's quite good PR and sometimes they do want to actually do it. But they delegate a lot of it, particularly, you know, revenue type stuff. Um, and maybe quite a lot of criminal things. Um, and so you get royal officials making these kind of decisions. And it looks to us in England like these royal officials are originally sort of civil servants who gradually become specialized in areas that involve dispute resolution type tasks and emerge as judges and they're not just what we would think of as judges they have a revenue function um when they go around the country deciding cases they're also they're representing the king in all his kind of majesty and power they take over the local government while they're there um but they are specialized and have some kind of learning that other people don't have um mm. And in continental Europe, that's getting linked increasingly with a revived tradition of studying Roman texts on law, and then also religious texts on law, um, which have been produced mm. by the Catholic Church at the same time. And there's a lot of overlap in personnel here. So some of the early English judges are bishops or clergymen right. in some way. So they may have, well, they probably do have some access to this tradition. 
the, the earliest treatise on English law, we would probably say, which is called Glanville, named after the person people sometimes think is the author, um, clearly refers to this Roman tradition as well. It's got passages in there which are basically lifted from texts coming from continental Europe. Um, so this idea then of judges and lawyers as this kind of professional elites, um, learned community who have the expertise to resolve cases and the expertise to provide justice um, is one that's trans-European. And in England, you get that mixture of the civil service kind of practice approach combined with the kind of intellectual European idea about justice and elite and learned groups coming together and getting this learned profession. The peculiarity is the learning becomes uniquely English and isn't so closely tied to continental Europe as you have in Italy or France or Spain in that sense. So, and I think that leads, so obviously like England uh, kind of takes some of this from continental Europe, but uh, the impact on the world, I'm sure, you know, you have colonization by other European powers, but obviously Britain was the, the dominant imperial power for quite some time. What has been that worldwide effect of uh, common law and English common law? Yeah, well, it's, it's huge for countries that were, well, most countries that were part of the former British Empire. Um, you, know, you think about it and you've got common law systems derived from that English system on every mm -hmm. continent that's inhabited. Antarctica's managed yeah. to avoid it, but you've got North America... <laughs> with a kind of exception-ish for Louisiana and very clear exception for Quebec, but the rest of North America, definitely common law. You've got Belize in South America, Caribbean countries. We could mm. be thinking Nigeria for Africa and quite a few other African countries. Um, Israel would be a good example, down, heading towards the Middle East. Australasia, Australia, New Zealand, definitely. India, so really, really heavily populated country. Uh, India, yeah. all the way down to kind of like Singapore, which is much, much smaller, but also a common law jurisdiction. Um, mm. So there's a lot of the world that is, in that sense, has its legal system coming from the common law tradition. What that does not mean now is that the rules are the same in all these places. They are right. very right. much not. Um, what you tend to have is often you don't have the authoritative texts, although England in the 19th century was much more willing to send out a code on an area of law to a colony, but not have it in England, because we don't need it in England, but over in the colonies, yes, of course they need those. So right, right, yes. You get like codified criminal law in quite a lot of the British Empire, uh, but you don't get a okay. codification of criminal law in England. Um, you get codified trust law in India, we don't have that in England either. Um, so you have that um, less legislated law than in certain civilian jurisdictions, definitely. Um, and usually a sort of greater respect for and almost power for judges within the system. Um, and that's, that's really obvious talking to an American, obviously, because you think about the US Supreme Court and the amount of power the US Supreme Court has. But you could also think about, say, the Indian Supreme Court, which is a really powerful body when it wants to be mm. in India in terms of imposing burdens on the government and saying, you must do this. Um, mm. And a greater willingness typically to, I was about to say defer to the, to the judges, but that's probably not right. It's more leave certain things to judges that politicians aren't too bothered about dealing with contracts, 
personal injury, quite a lot of property laws. Most politicians aren't that bothered about these things most of the time. Um, what, what's interesting is those things have tremendous uh, impact, though, on everyday people. Yeah, they yeah. do. Every day. Um, you, know, you, you start your law degree and say, right, you, well, you went to the shops yesterday. That was contract law. There's your contract law problem for the year. You're definitely living somewhere. There's your property law. Um, yeah. And if you're not living somewhere, there's also a property law issue there, potentially. Um, <laughs> you're crossing the street. Yeah. The fact someone hasn't hit you is possibly because they don't want to be sued for hitting you with the car or whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's, it's incredibly important. Doesn't get the same kind of headlines most of the time, though. Um, you do get legislation on it, but less. Um, and mm-hmm. so in those, in the common law countries around the world, very often, if you're trying to work out what the law is of India or Singapore or whatever it might be, you would be looking at what the judges have said in that jurisdiction um, about what they think the law is. Sometimes also looking at other common law jurisdictions. So it's not that they're totally sealed off from one another. You, know, you can look now in English judges, particularly at this kind of Supreme Court level, do sometimes in certain types of cases, look at Australian or New Zealand case law or Canadian case law, American less so, I'm afraid, because America's sort of departed a bit more. No, that- yeah. Um, and yeah, we had, so it was a, the last ever blasphemy prosecution in England, uh, which is in the late 1970s. Um, one of the judges in the House of Lords, which was at the time the highest court, actually says, I wish we had the law like it was in India. So he actually looks across to the practice in India. Um, that's much less common. Um, I have quite a lot of Singaporean students, and there's an area of law that's been developing in England, and Singapore has very clearly said, we are not going to do what England has done in this regard. We're sticking with the older tradition, which we think is appropriate for us. Um, but they're looking, and they're saying, well, maybe we could, just like we're aware of what was happening in Singapore. So there's that, that ability to talk across what you'd think of as kind of legal boundaries. Say, so, well, yes, they're boundaries, but they're decidedly permeable. Um, yeah. There's that possibility of talking to each other. And do those, uh, do the English principles and precedents uh, from earlier, before the jurisdictions were set up, those traveled? Those and traveled, those yeah. Kind of formed the foundation. Yeah. Do they, go, do they look at uh, earlier English law in uh, their jurisdictions? To my knowledge, the response to that is probably the same as in England, which is if they really have to. Um, gotcha. You often don't want to be looking back at the older ones because they're harder to understand because the system was different. So actually interpreting yeah. them correctly is difficult. Um, yeah. And legal historians like me occasionally have a bit of a, a upset about this when you see someone trying to use an old case and just clearly not understanding it. Um, <laughs> but they are more difficult to use, whereas it's often easier to use a more recent decision. Um, and yeah. of course, if you're dealing with changed social circumstances or something, you probably don't want to go and go, oh, we have a 17th century case. Yes, that's lovely. Yes. But that was in a context where this is really not what we think is acceptable anymore. So let's move on and you look at something that's a bit more modern. But in theory, yes. I mean, there has yeah. been an area of um, private law called either unjust enrichment or restitution, which has really grown up in this, from the second half of the 20th century onwards. Mm. And the foundational case for that, which does get referred to, quite frequently in judgments across the common law world is from the 1760s. Wow. So that one does, does still get mentioned quite often. Um, but if we were dealing with something typically like real property law, it's very unusual to be looking that far back. Um, and contract right. law changed a lot in the, in the 18th, 19th century. So you don't typically look at much before the 19th century. But 
for place in the British Empire, they were still part of the British Empire in the 19th century. So they, they, in that sense, it's common stock from the 19th century um, before the country separated. Right. I mean, and the, as a great example is what you said earlier, right? Uh, you don't want to look too far back because then you end up having like a blasphemy case in 1970s, which is uh, especially like if you could imagine someone bringing a blasphemy case now, it'd be very, it'd be very odd, yeah. right? In our society. Happily, it's been <laughs> abolished in the UK, so you can't bring blasphemy prosecution in the UK anymore, but you can in some parts of, of the common law world. Um, really? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a running issue in Pakistan, which has a sort of hybrid um, common law, Islamic law jurisdiction. Um, yeah. And some other places as well. But if you've got a very strong religious tradition, it's, it becomes less odd in those contexts. Mm. But if you're dealing with um, the sort of the, the global north type jurisdictions that are common law jurisdictions, we'd find that very odd because whatever your place on the political spectrum, you would find that kind of infringement of speech rights to be an unusual thing to do. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. The, uh, so I want to be respectful of your time and, you know, kind of as we wrap up here, what would you leave for our audience as kind of the big takeaway that they need to understand about English common law? That's really tricky. Um, I'm tempted <laughs> to say the devil is in the details. <laughs> That's a total cop out. Um, it's really interesting and important, but it's also complex. And it's a complex, it's a tradition more than, in some senses, more than a law. Um, it's a way of doing things and, and practices. Which, which generates law, but it's, um, we think of law in that Hobbesian way. And yeah. that may well not be the right way to think about common law, that we should think about law itself as a different kind of thing um, than what we stereotypically think of as legislation. Yeah, it's, so it's interesting you say that because you know, you've talked a couple of times about how they pull out principles, right? But when you talk about it being more how we do things and that changes over time, could you even call those principles maybe customs? There are, there is like, a, there's a manner of doing things, and this is how we do things. Yeah, you can call them customs. I'm, I have to be cautious about that because there are technical rules about customs, and they are in okay. English. Well, they're like, <laughs> can you show that this was done in 1189? Um, and it's not that, of course. It's it's more right, the, right, right, right. the anthropologist sense of a custom. Of, of a yes, that's what I meant. Yeah. yeah, and if you think of it like that, then yes, absolutely. And some of it clearly is that. You think about, you know, you learn the way to speak in front of judges. You learn the way to read your texts. Your, I mean, we still have a kind of apprenticeship, almost training tradition for the mm. legal profession that you become a trainee of a more senior practitioner. You learn from them by watching them do. You can't learn it just from books. You, you, you can be a Kardashian going to law school and reading all the texts, but you, in England, you can't practice until you've got some kind of literally work experience. It's that experience that makes you mm. the lawyer as much as the, the reading and the understanding from the textual tradition. Uh, I think that's a, a great summary of this entire thing and just understanding how much work goes into it, understanding the value of what... Uh, you bring to the table as a legal historian and it just makes so much sense that you're like uh because it's so complex because it's all about the details you need to go back in and dig around and you can find resources for the future right um and or 
being like, let's clarify what was actually happening here. And is this really what we want now? Which yeah, is yeah, also indeed. an important. <laughs> Def- definitely. Um, <laughs> abso- absolutely. I, I'm much more in the closing off, I think, for quite a lot of things. But yeah. um, other people yes. might differ on that one. Yeah, I, that, that all makes sense. Uh, Dr. Uh, Ian Williams, thank you so much. Uh, you know, we'll put some links to some of your work, but uh, this has been uh, tremendous. Uh, just I, I've learned a lot. Uh, not, I mean, one, because you're a good teacher and two, because I didn't know anything about it. So this has been really eye opening for me. So thank you so much for coming on. Good. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you all very much.